Second Peter 3 uh, continues, as you might imagine, after Second Peter 2. Um, and Second uh, Peter 2, we were looking at the false teachers and uh, the uh, warning of Peter towards the false teachers and towards us to be careful about false teachers and false teaching in ourselves. And in Second Peter, he continues on now and reminds them again of his writing and what he is trying to get across to them. And so we'll read the first 14 chapters in Second Peter 3. Sorry, yeah, 14 chapters, first 14 verses. We are going quickly. Uh, in, in 2 Peter 3. This now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For they, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And so the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, then what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of that day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. This is the reading of the Lord's word. And so you'll notice there that in, and and I set it up with the patience, you'll notice there that what Peter is talking about repeatedly here is patience of God towards this coming time and towards us of this day of the Lord. And so he says there in in 1 to 3, he says, Now this I am writing to you in which I am stirring up to you your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your apostles. And so Peter first of all says, Regarding this patience, I want you to remember. I want you to remember what you've already been told. I want you to remember what the prophets wrote and what, what Jesus said. And so... So when we, when we do this today, this message, we're going to go through a lot of Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can sort of flip along or make a note of where I'm going, and I'll have some of them up here. But I do that on purpose because Peter says that it's in the Word of God that he's bringing this reminder to these people, and that as we look in the Word of God, these things that he wants us to know about God are taught to us. And so I'll just show you by going to a few examples here of the patience that Peter is talking about and where it is that he's getting it from when he talks about the holy prophets and, and their words, what's he talking about? 
And so if you were to go to, say, uh, Genesis, if you go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and you look at Genesis chapter 6 with the story of Noah, and if you've gone to Sunday school, you all know the story of Noah. And uh, Peter actually refers to Noah a couple of times in his letters, and so it's appropriate to go there. And if you look in Genesis 6, 11 to 13, it says that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is to be filled, is filled with violence because of them. And so God has decided that this is not working. Uh, men are, mankind is sinful, they're violent, they're corrupt, you need to start over again. And so he refers here to the words of the prophet, and you should remember the patience of God. And he says in 1 Peter 3.20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah uh, while the ark was being prepared. And so God was going to wipe out the earth, but then he was patient. He was patient for 120 years while Noah built the ark. Do you remember that, that it took 120 years for the ark to get built? And God waited for 120 years for this one righteous family to get the ark built so that he could preserve his creation through the family of Noah. And so God waited until declaring judgment against the earth full of wicked and violent people. He waited for the salvation of his creation. And then if you were to flip forward into Exodus, some other words of the prophets and the stories of the Old Testament. In Exodus 32, God has led his people, uh, saved them from, from Egypt, and he's led them out uh, from Egypt where they were slaves uh, for uh, many years and led them out and has told them that there's a promised land that he, they are going to. And in Exodus 32, he's giving the law to Moses, and Moses comes down. Uh, from Mount Sinai and he discovers all the people have abandoned God and they're now worshiping a golden calf and they say this is this golden calf is is the God that led us out of Egypt and they've completely forgotten God even though it's only been a couple of weeks and uh, you know they have they don't recognize God anymore and so the Lord says to Moses I have seen this people and behold they are an obstinate people and now leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them all and I will make of you a great nation and so he says, I'm going to start over again. I have this promise that I'm going to make you a great nation. I was going to make Israel this amazing nation that was going to represent me on the earth. And now look at them. I've rescued them from Egypt and they're worshiping this golden calf. I'm just going to wipe them out and start all over again. But Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And so you continue in Exodus 32 and it says, So the Lord relented and changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And so, again, God shows patience to his people waiting to withhold the day of judgment on them. And then if you were to go ahead, another example of God's patience, uh, you remember the story of Jonah, another Sunday school story you should all remember. And the patience of God with Jonah, first with Jonah, saving him twice. He saves him from the ship by having him swallowed by a fish, and then he saves him from the fish by having the fish spit him up on land. And so he, he saves Jonah twice, um, uh, from his own running away from God. And, uh, and then he saves, and he's patient with and saves the people of Nineveh that Jonah didn't even want to go to to preach to the people of Nineveh the salvation of God. And so when, when Jonah finally does go and he gives them the word of God, this is what it says in Jonah 3. It says, When God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. 
And then we read about Jonah. But greatly disple- this greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. (laughs) So Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God was going to be patient. He knew that God was going to forgive them and that he was going to put off his destruction and that he was going to wait for them to repent. And Jonah hated the Ninevites. And so he didn't want to go. That's why he was running away. And he, and he finally admits here, when, they, when the whole city of Nineveh does repent, he finally admits, I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew you were patient. I knew you're loving. I knew that you have this, this desire to wait for people to come to salvation. And that's why I didn't want to go to my enemies. Because I didn't want to give them the opportunity to know you and know your patience and your loving kindness. And if you go through it, like we could, I could just keep going. When Peter refers to the prophets and to the, to, the, to the scriptures of Moses, he's referring to these stories. And you can keep going through the history of God's people Israel. And over and over and over again, you know the story of Israel. They keep turning away from God, and God keeps being patient with them and drawing them back to himself and relenting on the calamity that he would bring upon them. And he keeps telling them, if you would simply come to me, return to me, I'll call you my people again. And the story of Israel is over and over and over again the story of God's patience with his people, not destroying them, but leading them back to him. And so the whole story of God's people is one of patience. As they doubted, as they misunderstood God, as they replaced God with other gods, as they decided they wanted a king to rule themselves, as they abused the temple and the priests abused the law, and all these stories over and over and over again, God is patient and patient and patient. Finally, even until Jesus who comes, he sends Jesus to say, I need to solve this once and for all to redeem my people. And even Jesus stands... You remember that moment when Jesus is at the end of his ministry and he's standing there looking at Jerusalem and he says in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Even Jesus speaking over Jerusalem, over the people of Israel says, I want to gather you in. I've been patient, waiting, but you would not come. And then the apostles, Peter talks about the teaching of the apostles, the commandments of Jesus given through the apostles. And in Romans 2, 4, just to give one example of many again, he was probably referring to Paul in Romans 2, 4, where he says, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And so over and over and over and over again, this is the point that Peter's making is you just have to look at God's word. You just have to read his scripture. You have to look at his history with his people. He is a God of patience. He is a God who is waiting for you to repent and waiting for you to relent and turn to him. And he holds that up against the false teaching that is going on about God's judgment. And so there's, we're here and now again, and it's just you know, 30, 35 years after the time of Jesus and Peter is writing this letter near the end of his life and he knows his time is short and so now we have false teaching again early on in the church just like it has been going on uh, since Genesis um, and there's this false teaching that God is not going to judge that God is slow that he's not going to hold up his promises and so Peter addresses the false teachers if you keep going there in 2nd Peter 3 3 to 4 he he basically uh, uh, 
says that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep and all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so, as I mentioned last week, the theme of the false teaching that was going on that Peter is addressing is this idea that there is no resurrection coming, that there's not going to be any judgment in our bodies. And the argument of these false teachers... Um, sounds very similar to the false teaching mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, if, I mean, those are common names that just run off your tongue, but uh, <laughs> they're mentioned in 2 Timothy, and Paul is talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and they are saying, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. And so essentially the false teaching that Peter is dealing with is these people are saying, um, well, the resurrection's already taken place. It's not going to happen again. It was a spiritual resurrection. There's not going to be a bodily resurrection. And so because we already have this resurrection in the spirit, uh, because clearly the resurrection, we still have our same bodies. And so it was a spiritual resurrection. And so our physical bodies don't matter. And so therefore, you can do whatever you want in your physical body. There's not going to be any judgment of your physical body. You know, you can behave however you want. Uh, the spiritual resurrection has already taken place and they created for themselves a theology that was logically made sense to them that physically we could do whatever we want because we had already been saved spiritually. And this was false and this is what Peter was trying to counter. And so he acknowledges their argument in verse 4 and then he corrects that false teaching uh, the way all false teaching should be answered uh, from Scripture. And so Peter makes three counter-arguments to this false teaching that there is no judgment coming, that God is not going to punish us in our body, uh, that there's no need to be concerned with your behavior uh, or how you turn uh, from sin in this world. Um, Peter makes three counter-arguments to this false teaching. First of all, he says, you presume that the world continues on its own. You, preserve, you presume that the sun rises and sets and seasons come and go and, and that generations passed and that the, the world goes on all as it has done since our fathers have fallen asleep, they say. The world just keeps going. Why are you worried about a change to the pattern of things? The judgment isn't coming because it just keeps taking care of itself and the world keeps going. And this is an incredibly modern argument. I mean, if you were to look at an argument today, it would look much the same. People would say, these crazy Christians, they've been preaching this for 2,000 years. Jesus is not coming back. You know, the world continues. The sun rises, the sun sets, it goes around, the, you know, the earth spins around the sun. Everything continues as it was, and it's going to keep going this way forever. And uh, so that's a, a very common argument. But he says, you're forgetting in verse 5, it escapes your notice that by the word of God the heavens existed and the earth was formed. And by the word of God creation exists all of this time. And so if you were to go back and look at the scriptures that Peter's referring to, you could go to Job 38. He says, Do you know the ordinances of the heaven, Job? Or do you fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that abundance water will cover you? In other words, are you in control of creation? Or in Psalm 145, he says, You, God, open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Or in Hebrews 1.3, he says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power when He made purification of sins and He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He holds all things by the word of His power. Or in 1 Corinthians 8.6, he says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things 
and we exist for him and our one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things are and we exist through him. And so Peter says, you have this imagining that the, the whole universe, the whole world, the whole solar system just continues on its own, but you don't understand that it's by God's power that these things were created and by God's power that these things are, susten- are sustained. And you're mistaken to think that the world simply continues as it is and will continue forever on. It's only God's moment-by-moment attention and power that it's sustained. And then you say that it was always the same. You say that it's, always, it's never changed. But have you forgotten the flood? Do you think those people woke up on that morning when the earth was being deluged, when it was being covered with a flood and said, oh yeah, this day is just like every other day. You know, the world's just going to continue on forever. This is no different than any other day. And, and he brings their attention to the flood and he says, you know, you've let it escape your notice that in fact God destroyed the world by water and that there is a destruction coming by fire. So every day does not simply dawn the same as every other day. And so he, he, he starts to unpack their argument and say, you've missed something. It's escaped your notice. And then the second argument, he says, is essentially that you measure God incorrectly. You false teachers and you false thinkers. You know, your, your, your thinking is wrong in this way that, that you're measuring God incorrectly. He says, you ask, where then is this promise? Why is it so slow? But Peter answers, you have let another fact escape your notice. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so he says, you're mistaken in your argument because what you think is slow is actually just the meager, limited, temporal scale of your little human lives compared to God. He says, you think it's slow because you only live for 70 or 80 years. And you see all these thousands of years going by, and so you think God is slow. But the, the error in your argument is your sense of scale of God is completely wrong. We get the scale of God wrong all the time, and it, and it, and it, and it leads inevitably to a false understanding of who God is. And we do this all the time. You know, we, we fall into this error a lot. We, we get God's scale wrong, and we can't seem to grasp the magnitude of God. And here we think a lot of time has passed, but it is nothing to God. Our opinions about what is long or short or what is quick or what is late, our opinions of those things don't mean anything to God because we're just operating on the wrong scale. We don't get a sense of how grand and how great God is and His plans are. And I love the little detail as an example of this that Moses records in the events of the Tower of Babel. Another Sunday school story for you. Just call into mind all your Sunday school stories. You know, and you remember what, 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 what mankind attempted in Babel because they had the, the scale wrong. It says in Genesis 11, he says, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. You remember the story now? And let us make for ourselves a great name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, which is what God told them to do. So they're trying to counter that. They're trying to stay gathered together. And, and they're going to make this tower that's going to reach into heaven. And then verse 5 is awesome. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, (laughs) which the sons of men had built, right? So they built this amazing city and this huge tower was going to reach up to heaven and God had to come down just to see it because they didn't understand the scale of God, that it didn't matter how big they built this tower, God was going to have to actually come down to be able to see it. And we do this all the time. We get the scale of God wrong. And we think he is somehow just like us, but maybe just bigger or more powerful or something. And he is, but he's beyond our imagining in scale. And so this is where the false teachers have gone wrong. And so this is what Peter is pointing out. He says, your your whole argument doesn't make any sense because you don't understand how big God is. 
And it's not just his scale in the area of space and time. And this is the important thing about Peter's teaching here too. But God is bigger than we can imagine in the area of justice and righteousness and holiness and purity and wrath and judgment. And so we read these words in the Bible and we think we have an understanding of what justice is or we think we have an understanding of what anger is or what righteousness is or what holiness is or what purity is. And we apply our own moral standards of what we think is pretty good. Well, he's a good guy and he's pretty righteous and he's pretty holy or he's pretty pure. And our standards of purity and righteousness and holiness and our standards of judgment and justice and and just punishment are so tiny and inconsequential compared to God's scale of understanding those things. We make mistakes in our understanding of God when we think we understand what proper justice is or we think we understand what real holiness or purity is. We have no concept of the magnitude of the scale of God in the area of His morality and His righteousness and His purity. And so we think and we think we're generally pretty good and that God doesn't really have to be that hard on us and that God's justice should be satisfied by just, you know, a stern reprimand or a slap on the wrist or something. And we get confused and we get confounded when God's judgment requires things like the flooding of the earth, when God's judgment requires the destruction of a city, when God's judgment and justice and righteousness and purity requires the elimination of a nation or ultimately the death of His own Son. And we look at that and we say, how bad can sin be? It is more horrible than we imagine. We get the scale of God wrong all the time and we belittle Him when we don't understand how majestic He is and how far above us in this universe He is. And so God is not just a really big version of us. He's beyond our scale in time and space and much more importantly, He's beyond our scale in these issues of justice and righteousness and holiness and purity. And so we get a lot of false teaching that's based on just misunderstanding how grand and how majestic God is to the point that God's... Uh, that, that it, at the same time that He has this uh, scale in terms of justice and righteousness and holiness and purity, He's also grand in this area of mercy and grace and patience and love. Because if he wasn't as equally grand in those areas, then we would have no way of salvation and no hope for ourselves. But God's love is equal to his justice. And so his perfect justice is satisfied by his perfect love. He absolutely needed sin to be paid for. And so that perfect justice had to be solved. And so he solved it with his perfect love of sending his own son to satisfy his own justice. And so we are thankful. Peter's saying you should be rejoicing at the magnitude, at the scale of God because he is big in all these areas that we can't comprehend. And so the false teachers and we often believe and we still struggle with getting a right sense of God's scale and we think that we can judge and we think that we can comment and we can make observations about God that are somehow meaningful or somehow constrain God to our ideas of what he should be and we can't. Our thoughts about God are only conformed by scriptures and our thoughts never conform or constrain the Scriptures or God. Thirdly, the third counter-argument that Peter makes, uh, not just uh, that they have forgotten that the earth and the world doesn't just continue on its own, and also they have forgotten the scale of God, he says, thirdly, that God is not slow, in fact, but He is merciful. He's saying you're misunderstanding what's going on. You, you are observing something, but your, observ- but your conclusion of the observation is wrong. What you think is slowness 
or what you think is absent-mindedness or you think is just God not paying attention or not caring about what is happening with his people is actually God's mercy. And so you're observing something, perhaps rightly, but you're concluding wrong. God is not slow, but he is merciful. And he corrects these false teachers to explain uh, where their understanding of God has gone wrong. He says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so Peter says you've misunderstood all these scriptures. You've misunderstood Noah. You've misunderstood Moses. You've misunderstood Jonah. You've misunderstood Hosea. You've misunderstood Malachi. You've misunderstood Jesus. You've misunderstood Paul. You've, mis- <laughs> you know, you've falsely represented all of them. God has been spelling it out for you, scripture after scripture after scripture, uh, time after time after time, prophet after prophet after prophet, uh, through his son, through his apostles. God has been explaining about his mercy for your repentance, and you have completely misunderstood it to say, God doesn't care, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Peter's trying to explain to them that they're not getting it. You've misrepresented God. Your interpretation of things is upside down. You think God is slow or unfaithful to his promise when in fact God is patient with you exactly so that you can take advantage of his promise, that he will save you from this destruction if you call upon his name. And so that's the patience of God. And so how do we apply then this patience of God? What is the warning or what is the teaching that Peter has here for his people? He's saying that God is patient, first of all, even with these false teachers. I mean, that's one of the things we can take away here, is that as these false teachers are mocking God and as they're teaching the things that they're teaching, even their punishment and their destruction is waiting. Even as they mock him, God is giving them time yet to repent. They're not saved. They are not people who were once living holy lives and have somehow slidden back into sin. All through chapter 2, Peter has made it clear that these are greedy, amoral people who are deliberately teaching lies for their own profit. But God is being patient, and He is waiting that some of them might repent. And Paul and the apostles, they've heard the teaching of Paul and the apostles, and they've been twisting it to their benefit to lead people astray. But their destruction is ultimately coming if they don't repent. He says in in verse 9 there, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So, So don't listen to these false teachers. I'm being patient with them, but don't listen to them, Peter says. God's being patient with them, but there is a day coming in which their judgment is coming, and the judgment is coming on the whole earth. And not only is God patient with these false teachers, God is patient with all the people around us. God is being patient all of these years in order that people have an opportunity to come to know him. He is waiting for the time of the Gentiles to be complete, it says. And that he's willing to endure the foolishness. And God is willing to endure the scoffing. And God is willing to endure the sin. And he is willing to endure generation upon generation of of people who discredit his holy and perfect and righteous nature. And his patience is waiting for people to come to a saving knowledge of him. And so if God is patient with all those people around us, is he any less patient and should we be any less patient in praying for and serving and loving and caring and opening up the gospel for those who don't believe? So we need to look at it this way. That we have this time now while God is being patient. We have this time now to act. And as God is being patient, he's patiently waiting for us 
to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. He's waiting for us to share it with our, with, our, with our family members. He's waiting for us to share it with our co-workers. He's waiting for us to share it with our friends and our street and our neighbors. That He's waiting for us to engage the gospel in people's life, to open up our lives, to, to invite them to church, to ask them what, what part faith plays in their lives and, and what meaning they think their life has, or to tell them stories of Jesus for our own lives. If God is so patient... Shouldn't we be also? Shouldn't we be patient and work with Him in this time of patience that we have to let people know about God so that they can come and be rescued from this destruction and calamity? And we should not test His patience, but we should be getting out there and acting while we, while we still can and while we still have this moment of time to see God's patience for what it is and to have them follow Him. Again, Romans 2, verse 4, Paul puts it this way. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Right now, this time that the false teachers are mocking and saying God doesn't exist and don't worry about God and you know, he's never coming back and there's never going to be any judgment, this time right now that they're thinking is, is God's not caring is the time that we have to rescue people, is the time that we have to share the gospel and lead them to repentance. And God is also patient with us. God is patient with our misunderstandings of him. Of, of thinking of God in the wrong scale like these false teachers or, or thinking that he's slow or thinking that he's not going to come through with his promises or, and he's patient with our slowness to learn, with our stumbling around, with our, with our resistance of giving everything in our life over to him. You know, he's patient with us as, as we sort of put God first and then after a little while we put our career first and now we get God first again and then, and then we put our kids first and then we get God first again and then, you know, and then we put our retirement and vacations first and, and then we get God first again. He's patient with us as we wrestle with this through our life and he is patient waiting for us as we sort of stumble around in our faith with him in our constant wrestling with him for who comes first in our life. God's patient with us in all those things. And so we take away from this that we are not to take this lightly. Peter says this in, in the sternest of terms, that we should not take this lightly, this patience of God. That all this time that God has not brought judgment on the world and on our sin has been his patience, and we should never make light of it. Humanity never should have made it to 2015. Humanity never should have made it to 015. We never should have made it to minus 5015. This has been thousands and thousands of years of God's patience with people who choose disobedience, who choose to glory ourselves over God, and yet God is patient with our foolishness. And we do this with our own children, right? You know, our kids will do something wrong, and, and we'll do this when they get a little older. Our kids will do something wrong, and we'll wait, and we'll be patient, and we'll see whether they will come to us and confess and admit what they did wrong, right? And so you're patient with them for a few hours, and they haven't mentioned anything, and and they know they're guilty, and you know they know that you know that they're guilty. But they're just waiting. And so you wait, give them, you know, give them till supper time, and they still haven't said anything. Well, maybe they need to sleep on it. So you wait till breakfast, you know, and a day later, and you're patient, and you're hoping. And that's the heart of God. It's God's hope that none would perish. It's God's desire that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And that's God's heart for us, just like we have with our kids. He's waiting. He's waiting for dinner time. He's waiting the next day for breakfast. And he's waiting again. He's saying, I'm just hoping that these people will come and turn to me because I'm being patient with them and allowing them the opportunity to repent. And God doesn't just wait a few hours or a few days. He is waiting ages for his people to come to him so that the complete number uh, come to him. He says in verse 11, Peter says, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way then, what sort of people ought we to be 
in your holy conduct and godliness. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And so ultimately, Peter says, there is an end to this patient. As much as God has been patient all through scriptures, and he gives all those examples, and as much as God is patient with these false teachers, even in this age, and as much as God is patient with the world around us and the community around us, and he's patient with us as we sort of stumble around and he waits for us uh, to do his will and work in his kingdom, there is finally an end to this patience. There is coming an end to the patience of God because as much as God is faithful in his patience and in his promise to be patient and loving, God is also faithful in his justice and his promise to bring justice. And so eventually the patience will end and the justice will come and the world will be destroyed by fire and there will be a new heaven and a new earth because God wants to be faithful to his promise that he would recreate all things and that there would be an eternity of righteousness. And so he says in Genesis 6.3, I will not always strive with mankind. God put a time limit on the length of our lives. And God put a time limit on the ages that he would wait for mankind. And so he is faithful not just to his promises of patience, but also to all of his promises. And God's promise to judge evil and punish sin and remake the world. And so God is going to be faithful to that promise to bring about a new creation. And so Peter basically sums up the end of his letter here. And he says, so, so you understand this all. I've reminded you, I've gone to Scripture, and I've shown you through Scripture the whole character, the nature of the patience of God. And he says, what are you to do then about that? He says, you need to examine yourself. You need to understand that this is an opportunity for you. And so you should be found faithful to God. You should be found living a life of obedience. You should be at peace and spotless and blameless before God in this time. Don't make the mistake that the false teachers are making, is Peter's message. These false teachers believe God doesn't care. They mock him. They scoff him. They think there is no second coming. They think that God just doesn't care or God is unable or maybe even God doesn't exist. And Peter says, no, that's not what's going on. There is one thing going on here that you have to understand, and it is the patience of God on a scale that you cannot comprehend. He is waiting and waiting and waiting for you to recognize him and to put him right in the right place in your life. And he says, don't be found caught because this judgment is coming like a thief in the night and it'll be too late when it comes. And so our job in response to the patience of God is to take the opportunity to respond. And if we have responded, then to be leading others around us to that opportunity so that time doesn't run out for them either. Let's pray. Father God, there's just one picture this morning that we really want to take away from this, and it's your patience. And so, Lord, I hope, I hope that the seriousness of chapters 2 and 3 come through in our hearts, that Peter is not pulling any punches here. He is not laying off these false teachers, and he's not laying off the believers that he's writing to. He is with all seriousness. As he nears the end of his own life, he is with all seriousness imploring them, entreating them to understand this reality of you, that you are patient, that you are loving, that it is your heart like any parent, that none of your children would turn away from you, but that all would repent and come to you. And so you are waiting mercifully. And so, Father, that message has to land on our hearts, that we, if we aren't right with you, we need to get right with you. And that if we are right with you, there is only so much time left for those around us. And we need to be living every day in light of eternity. 
We need to be living every day in light of the day of the Lord coming. That we need to take every opportunity for our conduct to be a witness to you, to be above reproach, so that people would ask. We need to take every opportunity to open up those conversations, those faith discussions with our friends and our neighbors, where faith is in their life, where, where Jesus is, whether they go to church, whether they used to go to church, whether they remember their grandma talking about church, whether they remember stories about you. Father, just impress on our hearts the earnestness that Peter has, that everything doesn't just keep going day after day, that we don't get lulled into sleep, that everything will be the same forever, but that our lives will be transformed one day for good or bad, and that we have to deal with that right now ahead of time. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, make this take root in our heart. In Christ's name, amen.